Sales win rates have plummeted to a mere 17%, and outdated technology and tedious manual processes are to blame. Meanwhile, managers lack the visibility they need to hold their teams accountable. But imagine a world in which these crippling issues are solved automatically. Revenue.io automates the most frustrating parts of sales so reps can focus on what they do best, selling. Completely automate pre-call research, logging conversation data in your CRM, writing post-conversation recap emails, and prioritized outreach. And as reps book more meetings and close more deals, managers gain the real-time insight they need to scale what's working across their entire team. Ready to say goodbye to tedious sales processes and watch your win rate soar? Head over to Revenue.io to learn more. It's time to accelerate. Hi, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Join me as I host conversations with the leading experts in sales, marketing, sales automation, sales process, leadership, management, training, coaching, any resource that I believe to help you accelerate the growth of your sales, your business, and most importantly, you. Hello, and welcome to Accelerate. I'm excited to be joined today by my guest, Jeff Schmidt. He's the Senior Vice President of Global Sales and Services at ClearSlide. Jeff Schmidt, welcome to Accelerate. Good morning. Thank you for having me. I hope uh, you're well. Uh, yeah. Glad to be here today. Well, we're pleased to have you here. So maybe take a minute, introduce yourself, give us a little of your background, maybe how you got your start in sales. Yeah, fantastic. Well, my name, again, Jeff Schmidt. I've uh, been with ClearSlide now as the head of sales and services for the last two years and excited to be a part of ClearSlide. But uh, my entree into sales was uh, um, actually through, I uh, started out as a search consultant selling uh, contingency placements back in a, a long, long time ago, longer ago than I cared. <laughs> a lot of people but, get started that way. Yeah, exactly. But it, it served me very well to um, to help me um, better understand the industries that I was interested in. And I actually parlayed the uh, the opportunity into my first sales job for a company called VMX, which at the time was um, selling call processing software, voice store and forward, which ultimately became known as as voicemail. And this right. was back in, back in the days when uh, we actually cold called out on the streets and knocked on doors. So oh, uh, my never. first included uh, included collecting business cards once a week. Oh, yeah. Gosh, I I've told the story. People in the audience are probably tired of hearing about it. But my first job was in the East Bay area and uh, based in Oakland. California. And yeah, we'd drive to the office park selling computers, drive to office park in Hayward or Union City and park the car and spend the day making cold calls. Yeah, those are the, the, the good old days. Now we've got technology to do that for us. Yeah, that's right. So um, you talked about, you know, you started with VMX and sort of interesting transition over the time. So how'd you sort of end up at ClearSlide? Yeah, so I, I spent a lot of years selling capital equipment, VMX, boxes, software, hardware, and um, I made a transition in the early part of the 2000s into a company at the time, WebEx, and mm-hmm. got my first taste of working in, in SaaS, and very exciting, understood, started to learn sure. about collaboration and how to work better together and how virtual communication and interaction could be facilitated and then from there, I went into a company called um, Cormetrics, which was a SaaS-based online retail analytics company okay. that that we scaled up from from very small to to uh, to scale and sold up to IBM. And from there, I sort of 
had the passion to stay in and around um, SaaS-based right. solutions and, and line of business focus. And as I was looking for my next great opportunity, I came across this idea where there was this company out there that was solving problems specifically for sellers and marketers. And I thought to myself, hmm, it was a, it's a missing piece. And I saw a gap in what a number of the existing and obvious CRM kind of companies at the time were doing. And that's what drew me to ClearSlide. And so two years later, we're psyched and still having a lot of fun. Yeah, well, and I think what a, a great sort of natural fit for somebody that's been in sales for a long time and, and seen their career grow is to actually, you know, what product area could you possibly know anything more about than sales? Yeah, it's, it's, it's exciting. And then we like to talk with our sellers about, you know, how often do you get to sell something that you actually use every day? Exactly. And, and it solves problems for each of our individual. And we try to become a best practice, obviously, in talking to our customers and sharing how we're using our own, uh, eating our own dog food. Right. Well, before we get into ClearSlide, is, is, so in your mind, you know, what are the biggest or maybe the single biggest sales challenge you're seeing for sales reps today? Well, I... I, I, I there are there are a number of them, and I'm trying to think about how to prioritize that. I think with an, uh, you know there are a number of uh, tools that sellers use today, and to in most cases little effect because they're spread across a variety of different touch points. But that that's that's the challenge, sort of an internal challenge. The external challenge that I think people is really trying to time the buy and sell process and align that more effectively. And, and we see more often than we'd care to admit our sellers are where they think they are in the stage in the sales process and the buyer is nowhere near aligned either. In, in, in a lot of cases early on, the buyer is much further ahead than our seller or in mm-hmm. some cases our, our sellers then speed to get caught up and blow right past where the, the buyer is and pricing's on the table and they're talking about trying to close in transaction that's not, that's not um, anywhere near ready to do so. So I think Ensuring that you understand where the customer is in their process and cycle and what they need to facilitate the rest of their decision. So things like content and engagement sure. and analytics all sort of play into that naturally. Well, I sort of put what you talk about in, and maybe I, I use the term a little bit differently, I think, than you guys use it in terms of your product. But um, yeah, the problem I see is is one, I think, that speaks to what you're talking about in terms of being misaligned between buyer and seller is is I call it engagement, but it's really engagement at the human level with the prospect. You know, it seems to be that's still really hard, especially for maybe some of the younger generation of sellers, is to how do we build that rapport and that relationship where they open up to me and they give me this information I need and I feel comfortable asking for the information I need to understand their requirements, their needs, their timing, and so on. Yeah, no, that's an excellent point. And that was the sort of the counter to what I mentioned about all the different technology that's now in place. And I think there has been a, it's almost a cultural um, schism that's occurred where you think about historically you had field sellers and then the evolution of inside sellers. And, and to me, um, and in particular, my time at WebEx, I learned, you know, Productive selling is really what you want to be engaged in. Right. And productive selling means that you want to be able to get to your audience as effectively and timely as possible. And more often than not, that doesn't require that face-to-face interaction or in-person interaction. But there is still a very strong right. need for that personal interaction. And and we've deployed so much technology in front of our, our modern sort of first-tier sellers who are coming up in their career <clears throat> that we frankly haven't enabled them in the right way to be able to 
um, learn that nuance about that human interaction, right. building that rapport and that relationship. Yeah. Well, so what do you think is the the answer to that? I mean, how do we get better at doing that? Because this is this is to me is something that's really consistent. Yeah, across everybody I speak with and all the companies I work with and talk to is is yeah we still have this. I call it. You'll appreciate the term is is. Uh, you know, back from the telecom days, we talked about the last mile, right? I mean, we could we could get our, our bulk data and, and transmissions to the central office or the cable head end, but then getting it to the president, you know, the point of presence or the residence was very expensive. So we had a last mile problem. We have the last mile problem in sales now, right? I mean, we're really good at getting to that point where then somebody has to talk to a person, whether in person or, or virtually or remotely, that still needs to take place. And that's that's the failure point. Yeah, and it, it continues to be a challenge because getting that confidence to somebody who's accustomed to sending out X hundreds or thousands of emails a day, and then you know we work very hard with our sellers here, and I do a lot of interactive role playing to say, you know what, I'd rather you placed five really well prepared calls than fifty, so that in the unfortunate likelihood if someone if I answer the phone you, which is what you want that you're prepared to have a dialogue and it's difficult to strike that dialogue up so doing that research and having that understanding and it's sort of proper planning and preparation you know before you do and and, and it's a fine balance because you sure. want to cast that wide net to get as right. many prospects or interactions going as possible but then when you've got a quality interaction ready you can queued up um, how are you prepared to ensure that your audience, A, you know what they want to talk about, B, you have that material at your fingertips, and C, you can you can conduct the interaction in a way that facilitates your agenda, which is typically moving your sales process forward. Right. Well, and, and you really hit the key point there is striking that balance, right? Because oftentimes, at least surely in the SaaS world, is there seems to be this – you know, sort of rigid adherence to a set of metrics that have to do with, you know, how many calls we're going to make and contacts and so on, where quality or quantity really does seem to prevail over quantity, over quality, excuse me. Um, and you said you really have to be able to strike that balance. So how do managers give themselves the freedom to do that? Yeah, I, I you know, and, and managers have to strike that balance as well with their employees to not over-rely on technology and develop the skills of how do they interact and coach um, a seller to feel it's okay. You know, you have that added, that, that, that concern, that legacy sort of adoption worry about, I don't want to put this deal at the stage that it's in, that I know it's in, in Salesforce, for example, because I'm going to get questioned about it. <laughs> and and how, do you, how do you develop your managers is, is right. also part of the problem equation to, to be ready to coach, to say, Oh, you're in discovery mode. It's a financial services customer. The use case is this. Have you considered, are we talking about right. how do we help them facilitate that into a dialogue that the seller feels um, good about that's going to help them as opposed to what's your number? Okay, coach, I got it. I'm going to make my number. And those sort of really binary interactions that aren't value add for either party. Exactly. Well, let's, let's talk about clear slide a little bit and then we'll get into some more detail about the sales in general. So for people that don't understand, why don't you explain or aren't aware of ClariSlide? Why don't you explain what it does? And you call it a sales engagement platform. Yeah, that's correct. A sales engagement platform and really has three primary um, pillars to it content, communications, and insights. And what do those words mean for us? The content is really being able to ensure that we help 
um, sellers, marketers understand the efficacy of the content that they create and distribute. And so the common use case is I'm a seller. I want to get my prospect prepared for a discovery call. I send them a deck and I want to know how they've engaged with the deck. Did they Mm -hmm. spend, A, did they open it? And a lot of companies give you that insight. B, where did they spend time in the the deck itself? And then did they share the deck with anybody else? And what did those others do with that deck? And what that does is help inform the end seller um, should be prepared, help better prepare them for the next conversation that they're going to have. The, the second component that the benefit that it brings to internally mm-hmm. is it, it eliminates that sort of, he said, she said dynamic that can take place between sales and a marketing teams to better drive alignment. So we can right. say data tells us that this content is used effectively in the following ways. And by the way, your 10 slide deck we are really only you. The customers are really only engaging with three of the ten slides, right? And so it fuels the the, the content. Generally, it helps us better prepare, send, distribute, and 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 produce content that over time we understand how how well it's being um, engaged with. Okay. The second component is communications, and so facilitating that, striking that balance of connecting virtually and engaging with your prospect or your client and doing that in a way that's easy, easy to them. In, in, in the simplest terms, you know, we, our phrase hop on my link, mm-hmm. you type, you, you type in the URL and we're in our meeting and you've got the full rich content available, the audio experience, you have those channels with you connected to have, um, you know, a meaningful and, and, um, and, and good interaction. I've spent many times and too much time in companies where we're trying to get meetings started and it takes of the hour we've got allocated 15 minutes of it is downloading software to try to get the meeting started. And, you know, it's just not productive. So ease of access into the meeting is is a part of that, but also the ability for our sellers, once they distribute that content to understand again, um, where the customer is in their journey by virtue of what they're doing and how they're engaging with the content that we've provided them. So I'm better prepared. So when I'm communicating with the customer, I've, I've understood they spent most of their time on the architecture slide of our solution. We better be ready to have a technical discussion. So when we get on that call, we can communicate effectively with them and be prepared to you know, go into whatever level of detail they want to go into. Right, and I was just to make clear for the people listening is and watching is that when you talk about having basically you you create like a meeting room. So not to bring up your competitors, but so people understand you can create a as I understand it, you know, a video conference just like this, right? So yeah. you know, in place of using as you sort of alluded to go to meeting or something else, you've got integrated with your system this virtual meeting room. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's 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 an interaction, a capability to conduct the meeting, and so right. that's another component. And then the third element um, are insights, and the insights you know can kind of go in a number of different directions. Primary use cases for a seller to be able to understand what's going on with the content that they've that they've mm-hmm. sent to their prospects. Right? Uh, are they opening it? Are they engaging? How much time and where? And then. What what our uh, platform will allow for is that engagement data will then feed back into um, your CRM system at the opportunity mm-hmm. level. So it will update 
um, by stage where you're at and the engagement that you're seeing right. with that prospect. So what that can do then is it would help me. And for example, if I'm talking with one of my sellers or leaders or whatever the case may be, we can talk about, well, XYZ company Verizon is looking at buying from us and they've been incredibly engaged with us over the last 30 days. And in fact, we can see escalation of engagement, meaning higher level people are now starting right. to become part of the process. Wow, we should feel good about this opportunity. Or the antithesis of that is we've got a client who we're, we're forecasting the deal to close. They've had no engagement over the last 60 days. Yeah, no one's but, looked at the proposal. Yeah, what, 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 do, what, what, what gives us confidence that it's going to um, it, it's tracking to, to close in the timeline that we think it is. So it can help inform those conversations so that the coaching discussions are more timely and effective when a manager's talking with a seller. It also helps what we've done here is we took, um, we, every year we look at, um, the average engagement from our club qualifying top mm -hmm. seller. And we use that as an, in, an internal benchmark to say, you know, you don't have to use our product this much, but we know at this level, the top sellers use our product in this way and set that standard for engagement. Sure. And it's proven time and time again that the data supports that the people who engage with our product, they continue to sell and be productive. So it helps with onboarding. It helps with training, setting best practices. And so those, those are some of the insights, in addition to the ones I mentioned around the content, that help fuel um, what we do. Yeah, well, I think one of the things that's interesting when you, for people listening, again, to, to understand is that so when you're getting the sales intelligence that, you know, as you said, maybe an escalation in terms of level of people that are looking at the content, they're looking at specific pages, whether it's implementation or, or proposal, pricing, finance, whatever, is that, you know, we're in an environment where, you know, people aren't talking as much. You know, more of it's done through email and collaboration. And so, to me, this is a vital piece of information. Gosh, I wish I'd had it when I was working large, complex deals back years and years ago. Because, you know, then we sort of had to rely on somebody saying, yeah, I, I talked to this person. You know, maybe we, we discussed this or I talked to this person. Here, you actually have a trail. You can watch where, where it's flowing and who's actually looking at it. And this is the more likely the way that your customer is actually communicating about the content you've sent to them. Yeah, and it definitely helps when you do get, as, as statistics will say, buyers can be as much as 67 per, or two-thirds of the way through their evaluation process before they even engage with uh, a company right. or a seller. And so that last mile, as we talked about, yeah. is uber critical and making sure you're super um, precise with what you're helping to inform right. that prospect with over that last peer percent of the evaluation period is critical. And so these insights help inform that. And we see, you know, tremendous uptake in terms of results and productivity as a result. And if you're selling in a large complex environment where, you know, some of the factors they talk about in the challenger customer and challenger sale, more the challenger customer really come into effect, you know, 5.4 decision makers now. I think they've elevated that based on their latest research to 6.8 or 7 decision makers or stakeholders in every decision. This is a great tool to get visibility to say, yeah, who is engaging with our content? Who are the stakeholders, right? Who are the ones that are really going to be involved in making this choice? Yeah, exa exactly right. And we see that across our large, um, our large clients who've either deployed it with their field organizations who are working perhaps a smaller number of transactions but the importance of understanding those even at a more intimate level of detail um, is greater. Yeah. And in some ways, you know, that, that offset of lack of volume um, in in increases the criticality of the insights that you provide 
because there's fewer deals to blend mistakes or misses across. Right. Right. If you're working a thousand deals or, you know, if you're in a smaller kind of more transactionally driven cadence. Yeah, absolutely. I I wanted to delve into a little bit in some of the time we had about, uh, there's a great piece of content you guys had on your site about the 15 sales stats that should scare you uh, and what to do about it. (laughs) And and I wanted to go through some of those because there's, it was, yeah, it was pretty daunting statistics. And so one was was talking about pipeline. And this is, gosh, sort of become a cliche at this point. But uh, you had a, a stat in there from Accenture, 75% of deals in the pipeline never close. Uh, CSO Insight saying 58% of deals in the forecast slip out of the quarter. Um, and obviously, there's some overlap between those two two stats. But in your mind, who's responsible for that? I mean, this is this is a topic that comes up all the time. Managers point fingers at reps. Reps point fingers at managers. I mean, where do we start with fixing this problem? Yeah, how do you solve hope casting? Yeah, um, yeah. forecasting. I mean, they they are daunting statistics, and there's and and there's you know I, I was talking with um, a colleague yesterday about this. There's a reticence. Um, there are some sales processes and some metrics are so deeply ingrained in the way we operate. And there's a reticence to think that any kind of adaptation or change um, it, it will be helpful. And mm-hmm. the, defi- the, the definition of insanity, we all right. know. Right. Uh, so, so there is a need. It's a team problem is the, is the short answer. You have to look at the things with respect to what are your expectations of your sellers and how they engage and are you informing them with the right material and are you making that material readily and obviously available? You know, we went, we've gone through some pain as we've learned how to distribute the content that sending out multiple emails to our sellers, our take rate was very low, right? Uh, which partially helped inform some of the functionality we built into our product where we've got kind of a Netflix <clears throat> carousel bar at the top of the user experience mm-hmm. when they when they when they open it up in the morning and wow this is great content that's there available for me so it, it, you know making sure you're educating and informing and you're holding your sellers accountable to a standard great that's sort of motherhood and apple pie sure. the part the part that really i think where you can become far more productive and we've certainly seen this is the insights and the engagement i think it's incumbent on leadership to take the accountability there where they've sort of pointed the fingers at reps, transactions, volume, phone calls, this, mm. and what's the contribution that the leadership is making to this. And it's the old adage, inspect what we expect, but it's taking that well beyond that. So we can f- inform our coaching discussions so that I can be better prepared to get on the line with you and talk about your transaction in a way that's not binary about Andy, it's going to close by January 31st for $1,000, and I've got the buyer involved. Well, okay, that's sort of the surface-level metadata. You've got to be prepared to get inside of it. So to me, it's a team problem, and it includes marketing as well because they they are the informers of good content and the creators and the curators of the content that helps us with what we go do and how we engage. So how do we, though, fix this issue of, of the, you know, I say it's fix in the sort of global sense, uh, if we had our, our wishes come true, is, is this, you know, 75% of the pipeline never closes. Really a qualification issue. You know, some of it is a targeting issue, as, as you talked about, that involves marketing. But how do managers get more effective coaching their reps to say, look, just this is not the time for this particular deal. It doesn't mean they're not ever going to close, but hey, if they don't belong in the pipeline right now, let's take them out 
and let's focus on those because you brought before us, you know, let's focus on the, the quality opportunities as opposed to just the bulk. Yeah. I mean, we, we try to coach our, our sellers that, you know, we can live and work with yeses and nos, but maybes are killers. Absolutely. And so worst you, answer you, ever, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, let's check back in with me in a month. Well, okay. Um, so, so that engagement data, the engagement data really is that qualitative. It, it's got quantitative benefits for sure, but it does provide qualitative insights into whether or not in the example I used earlier on, if you've got a customer who's whose engagement is progressing and increasing, not only in the frequency of the engagement and the duration of the engagement, but the level of the individuals that are engaging and, and informing leaders to that, to the ability, rather than putting the onus on the seller to say, let me go update my notes after my meeting to say mm. six, six people were on the call for one hour. There was a VP, three directors and procurement, you know, automating that to make that easier to fuel a more productive conversation, I think is a big part of the equation so that those coaching right. insights can be done more effectively. And in your own sales process, do you have very tightly defined exit criteria for each stage so that it's you know sort of unambiguously clear about whether somebody's in, you know, stage one, stage two, or discovery phase, so on and so forth? We, we absolutely do. And I would love to say that we are, at, uh, you know, expert at it and it never fails. But, you know, those the statistics include people like us as well. Oh, <laughs> uh, but, yeah, we have clearly defined what we call give and get criteria okay. to, to be able to quantify um, whether we move from discovery to solution and value. And through our we have a, a five stage sales process. OK, so another interesting uh, statistic that was in this piece was about sales productivity is saying that 60% of sales leaders say that sales cycles are lengthened because their teams don't have the proper tools. Um, is that really cause and effect? I, I, you know, the average, I think there's another statistic. The average company has five to eight different sales tools, productivity right. tools deployed. So In their stack, much, right. In, in their stack, how many more do you need? I think part of it is it, 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 it's proceduralizing and understanding what you want out of those and having them tied together in an integrated sort of mindset. And I don't mean from a, 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 a I mean, obviously, you've got to have it from a technical perspective mm -hmm. that content or data flows. But um, but thinking about the process, it's almost like the conversion math when you think about um, leads coming in the top of the funnel. And, and the mathematical equation that flows through there, right. you need to have that linkage in your sales process and your sales management methodology to ensure that it's not just, again, that binary interaction that, uh, that, that, that I think that's where sales coaching just falls down. And the insights and the engagement insights are super powerful to inform better conversation. Yeah, and, and I think to your point, and to another one of the stats, is, and I think it's become so important, is because another stat that you guys have out there is that 70% of sales reps don't validate prospect interest during the sales process. This is coming from our friends at CSO Insights. Um, gosh, that really is the key to that whole pipeline issue, right? I mean, sales reps don't understand, oftentimes, sellers don't understand that by virtue of selling to someone, you're necessarily changing them. Right, they become more educated, more sophisticated, perhaps, in what they could do, what they could achieve with the, your product or a product like yours. So you have to continue to validate that interest. Qualification is not a one-time event. No, it's ongoing, and it's that that you know precision questioning. People don't want to be forced to change. You know, they resist. You've got to encourage them. But at every step of the of the process, you've got to get a yes or a no, and and eradicate those maybes from the. Uh, you know, from the funnel. And it, it's very difficult because 
if you're in a situation which is not uncommon for most sellers, if you ask them what's one of the key things they need, they'll say more leads. And so they have a, they, they, they want to hold on to those leads that they do have that they are working. And that feeds into why deals don't close, because you're working on things that may close at some point. Hopefully not before you put a birthday candle on <laughs> and funnel that it, you know, it's been in there for a year. But um, but but getting them confident enough that that getting to know or yes is 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 far more powerful than just, again, leading into hope casting. Yeah, well, I agree 100%. It's funny. I wrote a blog post a couple of years ago about this where I was talking about, you know, the best thing that can happen is to get a yes and a no. And, and the worst outcome is the no decision decision. Yeah. Because, and some people are just horrified by that, thinking you're out of your mind. But I'm like, gosh, I mean, if we, if we worked somebody and they ultimately ended up making no decision, then we just wasted all that time. I mean, they never were serious. They never were qualified. Well, it's, it's, you know, oddly enough, one of a, a mentor of mine a lot of years ago, it's a sports analogy, taught me, gave me this example. You know, you look at Hall of Fame baseball players and, you know, they generally bat somewhere in around 300 or right. maybe a little bit higher. The pessimist would say that they fail six to seven out of 10 times. The optimist and then the sabermetricians have now learned that you can learn something from those other six or seven at bats and what happened and were they productive. So the point being there is you, it's hard to learn from a maybe. It's hard to learn from a no decision. We see yeah. too, we see far too many reason codes of no decision. And, and to me, that's either we didn't qualify it properly or we didn't disqualify it properly. Exactly. And, and, and the learnings that can come from either of those uh, more directed events from not just the seller, but for the company as a whole, um, are, 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 you know, transforming, but they take confidence and time to be able to get to a point where the company matures and thinks through and the seller gets beyond, I'm going to be berated because I've lost a deal. Right. Well, and I, and I think sometimes a you know, metric we should be integrating into the, or implementing into systems is for managers, instead of looking at percentage of, of coverage with pipeline is look at percentage of conversion off pipeline as part of their bonus. And yeah. I think that would begin to change behaviors fairly quickly. Yeah, uh, agreed. And we definitely measure conversion of pipeline. That's a very important uh, to met a metric to us. Okay. So, Jeff, we're in the last segment of the show. I've got some standard questions I ask all my guests. And the first one is a hypothetical scenario. Were you, Jeff, and you may have been in this situation before, have just been hired as VP of sales by a company whose sales have sort of stalled out and time to do a sales turnaround. CEO is anxious to uh, sort of hit the reset button and get things on track. So what two steps would you take your first week on the job that could have the biggest impact? Well, I, I think there's, there, there's two things. Information is always critical. And, and data-driven insights into that information to support whatever you're, you're learning. And I've always found talking to two constituencies is in, in any time I've joined a company and ongoing as I'm a part of any company is very important. One is getting in front of as many customers as possible and understanding their view of how well they understand your value proposition. Are they using your product? Are they using it the way in which you intended? Mm -hmm. and, and, try, and trying to get some insights there. And then the second piece is talking directly with the, the sellers and, and getting perspective from them as to where they view their challenges are and spending time understanding that. Do we have a positioning problem? Is it a pricing packaging issue? Mm -hmm. is, is, it a, is it a quality problem? Do we have the right people ultimately? It's not easy to do in the first week. I'm actually not su suggesting I could get all that <laughs> no. done in the first week. But in terms of pr thought process and right. prioritization, those would be the two first things that I would think about. Okay, excellent. 
So some rapid fire questions. You can give me one word answers or elaborate if you wish. So the first one is when you, Jeff Schmidt, are out selling, what's your most powerful sales attribute? Persistence. Who's your sales role model? Uh, well, I'd love to say it would be Alec Baldwin and Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, <laughs> but that might lead to too many stereotypes. My right. actually, my first, very first sales manager, a guy named Dave Balance, taught me the value of being on time and prepared. Yeah, for yeah. As as somebody once said, showing up is is ninety nine percent of it. So uh, yeah, good. So one book every salesperson should read. I think, I, I, you know, to me, two, two come to mind. One sure. for sure is, is a company, is excuse me, is a book called uh, Boys in the Ball, Boat. Boys yeah, in the Ball. oh, love that, love that And book. that's a fantastic book that would, um, it, it, it's really not a sales no. book, but it, it will help inform, I see challenges sellers face in, in working as part of a team. Yes. The, the common problem is this lone wolf mentality. Right. And, and, and incorporating your your yourself as part of a, the trust of building, being a part of a team, super important. Great lessons learned from that. Wait, and I would just you know elaborate a little bit for the listeners. A book called Boys in the Boat about the 1936, I believe, Olympic team, rowing team. Uh, most university of Washington. University of Washington. Yeah, at that time they chose them all from a university. Yeah, great great story about uh, teamwork. Yeah. Okay, and the other one. The other, the other one is Emotional Intelligence 2.0. Travis Bradbury book just kind of recently came out. Right, I'm working right. my way through it. It's a fantastic um, uh, narrative on not only um, uh, you know statistically, but personal development can always um, come. And your IQ is sort of set, but your EQ is something you can develop over time. And the, it's staggering as your EQ develops over time, your production and your results tend to dramatically increase yeah makes makes a ton of sense yeah that's all right i'm definitely i haven't read that one yet but i'll definitely check that out okay last question then for you is uh what music is on your playlist these days well um i i've got a wide variety of musical tastes and i come from texas so i tend to lean a lot towards southern inspired music there's a guy called drake white who's out recently he's fantastic oh, kind of a that's new for me. yeah fantastic uh young new album not young new um uh, artist with a great new album out and then anything by stevie ray vaughn um he's i'm a i'm a fan and uh, lyle lovett's another one that i i always oh, enjoy. okay well i love it excellent all right well good stuff well jeff thanks for joining me today so tell folks how they can connect with you and find out more about clear slide yeah, fantastic. I mean, you can always reach out to us, www.clearslide.com, our website. Uh, my personal contact information is uh, jschmidt at clearslide.com. Would love to hear from anybody who has questions or insights or uh, interest in learning more about ClearSlide. We're happy to, uh, to connect. Excellent. Well, again, thank you. And friends, thank you for taking your time to join us today. Remember to make a part of your day every day to deliberately learn something new to help you accelerate your success. And an easy way to do that is make sure you join my conversations every day with experts like my guest today, Jeff Schmidt, who shared his expertise about how to accelerate the growth of your business. So thanks again for joining me. Until next time, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard and want to make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher.com. For more information about today's guest, visit my website at andypaul.com. Hey, sales strategists. At Revenue.io, we're not just imagining the future of sales. We're building it. 
We offer the world's most complete platform for revenue teams, and we're featured in the most recent Forrester Waves for both sales engagement and conversation intelligence. With Revenue.io, you can slash call prep time to seconds, guide your reps in real time to have more successful conversations, and after calls, we generate ready-to-send recap emails so sellers can keep deals soaring toward the finish line at light speed. See the future of sales now at Revenue.io.